The Mac Observer's Mac Geek uh, Premium, number 290 for October 7th, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Dave, but you probably knew that already if you have subscribed to the premium version here. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Dave Hamilton on the other end of the Skype line. Of course, as always, John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Are you? You sure about that? At, at present, yes. All right, cool. That could change at, at any time. Probably not during the show, though. I would hope not. No, we're not going to do the mobile Mackie cab. Um, no, but next week we we are taking the show on the road. So oh, to we speak. are. Oh, well, yes, we are. Yeah, we're heading to Vegas for Blog World Expo. So uh, if any of you will be out there, of course, let us know. Uh, we are we're there. What Thursday through Saturday night or something? So mm-hmm. should be uh, should be a good time. I I like Blog World Expo. It's a uh, it's a fun little show. Uh, you know what? Let's dive right in here, John. Uh, in the last premium episode, we talked about uh, Marion, who had an issue that we diagnosed, that you diagnosed. Uh, you're the one that kind of figured out that there was that firmware password issue. And we got a comment from Mike that's, that's awesome So uh, about this, expounding on it. Uh, and he says, I believe Marion actually has two separate issues, one hardware and one software. First, I agree with you. And that a firmware password was installed on that machine that would explain the hardware behavior. Can't boot from anything other than the primary boot drive, unable to reset PRAM. Uh, The only way to remove the password without knowing the password is to make a hardware configuration change, i.e. add or remove RAM. A new hardware config will remove the firmware password. Second, the software issues can be attributed to remote management installed on the computer. Mac OS 10 client can be bound to a directory server, either OS 10 or Windows server, and that server can force a client machine to behave as the admin sees fit. This ranges from what software can be installed to what server it looks for or in software update. These restrictions can be removed with a reinstall of the OS, which is why I believe Marion was able to regain control of the machine once Mac OS 10 was installed. Anything you can think of on an OS 10 client can be controlled by OS 10 server. With all that being said, I believe Marion still has a problem. The Mac OS 10 reinstall removed any sign of the remote software management that was configured, but the firmware password is probably still in place. I'm willing to bet that if the machine was tried again to boot from a CD, it would still fail. The only option is to make a hardware change, boot the computer and test it if the hardware options are restored. All right. That, thank you, Mike. That's awesome. And I bet you're right. Uh, it, you know, it, it, without without doing one of the things and, and I'm leading into where you're going to take this, John, without doing one of the things that will reset the firmware password, it's not just going to magically reset. Now, John, you know of more than one way to reset the firmware password if I'm if I'm not uh, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I think you're correct. And how do I know this? Well, I know this because I looked at Knowledge Base article HT1352, which talks about the open firmware password. Okay. And it has a section of it that says, warning, the open firmware password can be reset and changed by any one of the following. And in the parentheses, except MacBook Air, which I don't believe this is. And, uh, well, we got one of them. 
Okay. Via physical, uh, and actually that's item two on their list, via physical access to the inside of the computer. And I'm not going to think that that means just, you know, opening it and closing it. I think you have to muck around in there. And, and as he pointed out, you know, changing the RAM, maybe there's a, you know, some sort of reset button in there. I don't know if you pull the battery, if that'll do it. But that's one of them. But then the other two, I think, are kind of interesting, Dave. So item one, they say, is that you can change the open firmware password, or I would think remove it, by any administrator user as designated in the accounts preferences or in server admin. Really? I think that kind of... How? That's coming out of the... That's all it says. (laughs) Maybe there's another article and I'll find it. but, But it suggests to me that if you're either the local administrator or... Well, it says here, server admin. If the server administrator gives that machine administrator rights, then you can undo the password. And I'll have to dig a little deeper to find that. And then the third way you can change that password, they say here, which I think is kind of odd, but then, hey, when the computer started up in Mac OS 9. Oh, wow. Uh, So. Yeah, although this machine, if it's an Intel machine, of course, it ain't going to start up in OS 9. Yeah, and I think it was an all-encompassing article. So, so, so I think what we're trying to say is that the, the first item there, I think maybe another way, if you can even figure out how this thing was remotely yeah. administered. But I, but I think that's an interesting point because I, I've, I would imagine most of our listeners, at least in a home environment, are not you know, putting, doing, you know, in the Windows world, it's called domains or directory services, and on the Mac, it's something similar. Or as he pointed out, someone else restricts what can be done on that machine. And, and now that I think about it, well, it, it makes perfect you know, sense. Certainly for, uh, and I think this was Marion's case, though I might, I might be misremembering, but if you had a machine at the office and then they said, Hey, you know, uh, you, you know, you're welcome to take that machine home. We, we don't need it here anymore. If they, if you wind up taking a machine home from the office that was previously set up this way, then you might run into a lot of this weirdness, which is, you know, kind of why I wanted to make sure we shared Mike's comment here to, to kind of round that out. So, yeah. Moving on to Luciano, John. I I, I want to try because I actually have a server of, of boot volume that I, I want to experiment with. So, uh-huh. so I, I think you and I should work with that a bit more doing this. Uh, again, it won't apply to most you know home users, but I think for enterprise users, it'll it'll help us. Uh, you know. Uh, cool. Yeah. Let me know. How I've got, you know, I've got Mac OS 10 server set up here. I, I have user accounts set up on it for some file sharing that we do, but. Other than that, I didn't do any any client controls. I wanted to do a software update server because I think, frankly, that would be a wise move with, you know, all the software updates that that happen. But uh, but I have not set that up yet. Right. I think that's one of the features of server or just the remote desktop. The the remote desktop package is you can push things to machines. Well, that's not the same as software update server, though, because what happens with 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 I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Is it sucks down when there's a software update instead of, you know, I've got five Macs in the house, five, six, maybe, Um, you know, each right now, each Mac downloads its own copy of iTunes 10 of, you know, of everything. But with a software update server, the server downloads its own copy. And and then that is the update server for all your local machines. Um, so I, you know, my guess is it's relatively trivial to set up, but I have not done it. Right. So, so the, the, the client machines rather than pointing to Apple are pointing to a server on the network to get their goodies. That's right. That's right. Which makes sense. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're in an enterprise and you're talking hundreds or thousands of machines, you don't want them all dogpiling on the Apple server. Exactly. Exactly. 
Yep. Okay, good stuff. Luciano, oh, this is so awesome. Yeah, so last last, uh, last premium episode, number 287, we talked about webcams and different Mac-compatible webcams. Well, uh, Luciano writes, I heard your discussion about webcams, and I use the following driver from webcam, well, it's, it's called MacCam, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I used this to set up a Logitech webcam that Logitech said would only work on Windows. People can have a look at this well-documented site for their camera and take an otherwise Windows-based camera and get it to work on the Mac. It does not work with everything. However, it does work with about 400 different webcams, and they're all listed. So you can uh, you can either look them up by name or, even better, take the webcam, plug it into your computer, go into System Profiler, which would be either Applications Utilities System Profiler or Apple Menu About This Mac More Info or... Apple menu with the option key down will give you straight access to system profiler. Go into USB, click on that webcam, and it will show you a vendor and product ID. You can actually look it up on their site by product ID to make sure that this driver is going to work before you download it. It is free, so there's no harm in trying. Uh, but uh, but yeah, very cool that you can do this and and take, you know, maybe you got a webcam as a you know bonus with a bank account you opened or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, you know, it might, it might, might work for you. No, I like I like that also because the way they list it um, gets into something I think we talked about before. But every USB device has embedded within it a vendor and a product ID, and this is how the Mac or any other computer thinks it knows how to interact with it. Right. Right. And yeah, so so no, you pointed out a good way to uh, to grab that info through yeah system profiler. Yeah. We'll, we'll tell you those things. Cool. Uh, all right. So we've got a bunch of questions here. I have a question for all of you. Uh, and my question actually stems from some conversations that I've had with some of you via email and it's about sponsorship and all that stuff. And the question that I have is how many of you would care if you heard a sponsor message here in the premium episode? Uh, every single one of you that I've talked to has said you wouldn't care. Uh, we don't really have plans to do this. But I'm curious uh, as to uh, what your expectations of of this premium thing are for us. Obviously, it's the extra content and it's a way for you to support us. And, and we've said that and we very much appreciate it. But uh, but I'm curious, uh, just, to, you know, an informal poll. Go ahead and send us an email to premium at MacGeekGab.com and just let us know uh, what that what that might mean to you, because uh, it just it, it was it was an interesting topic that came up in a in more than a couple emails recently. And I was, I was just sort of interested to hear it. So, uh, all right. Now moving on, Roland, Roland has an interesting question, John. I think this one's going to take a little while. Mm -hmm. Roland said, my wife is the keeper of all our families and friends birthdays. I always feel like a schmuck when she tells me to call my siblings or parents when it's their birthday, because I always forget. She keeps this data on her iPhone in the iCal app. She was also she also has alarms set for each birthday to remind her when someone's birthday is fast approaching. Is there a way for her to publish this information so I can have the information on my Mac, iPhone and iPad with alarms intact, if possible? Ultimately, I would like our setup to look something like this. Number one, I include her birthday calendar to my mobile me account. Then I have her delete her birthday calendar from her iPhone and sync up to mobile me birthday calendar so that any changes either of us make show up on each other's phones. However, she would be keep other calendars that are not a part of my mobile me account on her iPhone. 
Is it possible to have mobile me calendars and private calendars on an iPhone? Is there an easier way? She has an iPhone 3GS and I have an iPhone 4. She syncs her iPhone to an ancient Windows machine, and I'm pretty sure the calendar data is synced to Outlook 2003. However, I know she never uses that program other than to back up her calendar and contact data. I sync all of my calendar devices, all of my calendar data to my Apple devices through MobileMe. Also, is there a way to subscribe to a Google Calendar that stays active, meaning that updates I make to the calendar on my iPhone show up online with Google and the other way around? I would like to include my Google Calendar for work into my phone, iPad and Mac, along with the calendars I personally have on my MobileMe account. Now, I know Dave's opinion of iCal. It sucks, but hopefully these things I would like to accomplish are not out of the scope for the app's capabilities. Okay, so... My quick answer here is there is a path for you to uh, and and we'll uh, we'll talk about this. John, well, it sounded like you wanted to ask a question or interject. Into well, I want to I want to because so, for example, right now, Dave, uh, I um, and you have me check a few things here. But I think what we're talking here is you have multiple levels. Uh, there are numerous ways to get iCal to look at calendars. Yeah. I think the most basic way that he mentioned, which is what he's doing already is through mobile me correct well and of course no, you go to the, the mo most basic way is just the direct calendar on it right if we really want to you know go there right the, no okay absolutely is you keep your own <laughs> private calendar that, that you don't share with anybody right then there's another the, the next step would of course be to get a mobile me account and then if you go to system preferences mobile me sync one of the options is calendars and then that ties it in, as far as I can tell, to a mobile me account. And then it lists it in iCal under the heading. And I want to mention these headings because I think they're important. And it says, on my Mac. Right. So, for example, I see in my iCal, on my Mac, I have home and unfiled, which is annoying because that keeps appearing, I think, when, whenever iCal gets upset about certain things. It creates this unfiled category. Right. And it keeps reappearing, but, but that, that's for another show. So I see that, but then there are a couple of other different ways, and you and I already do this, Dave, and that's why I wanted to mention this, is that there, there of course, are, are ways, and he hinted at this, and, and you and I actually do this right now. Well, you know, well, I don't know if we quite do, because... Uh, well, I what do, I'm, but you don't. And, and, and what I'm getting at here is, the, the, as John has said, there's multiple ways to sync the calendars. One is mobile me, right? Uh, and when you sync mobile me... The only thing that syncs to mobile me are the, the calendars that show up under the on my Mac section on your on your Mac. Uh, and then, of course, you can sync mobile me with your iDevices, right, John, your you know, iPod Touch, your iPhone, your iPad and whatever the next iDevice du jour turns out to be. However, uh, you and I, John, we have a we have a need that's very similar to what uh, Roland's talking about here. He wants to share birthday calendars with his wife. I want to share a, a Mac Geek Gab calendar with you. And so what I did was I created a Mac Geek Gab calendar on Google, right? And it's part of Google Calendar. I just created a Mac Geek Gab calendar. And then online on Google, I went in uh, and there's a sharing preference on the calendar online. And you tell it, yeah, I want to share this. And I put in your Gmail address because I knew that's what you had your Google Calendar linked to. And then uh, anything I put on that Google calendar and I said it that you could you had edit access and, you know, full rights to the calendar because I want it to be a fully collaborative thing. Anything uh, I put on the calendar, you see anything you put on the calendar, I see if you take an event and change it, it changes on my calendar. 
everything's good. So then uh, we both sync with Google, but we do it in different ways. Now you're doing it directly from inside iCal as a, an account, I think uh, in, in your. Absolutely. Account. Okay. So what I, so what I did, yeah, is, is I went into iCal preferences accounts, and then there's a list of accounts. Okay. And, and the only one that I have defined right now is of course my Gmail address and under it says CalDAV, which is the protocol that right. uh, Google Calendar is using. And then there's a delegation tab. And I think this is important because this is how I see it in iCal. And under delegation, I see two calendars. One, I see MacGeekab, yep. read, write, because of course you, you trust me to, <laughs> we trust each other right. to uh, only put Mac Ecab things. And then it's funny because I see a holidays one and I don't know if that's something you grab from somewhere else, but that's read only. I, I assume that's a publicly available thing that you, you drew into the account. I didn't, you, know, you might've drawn that into your Google account. I have, oh. I have one in mind, but that's, yeah. So you're only seeing the things that your Google account can see. So I have probably half a dozen, maybe a dozen calendars on my Google account. You only see one of them. Because that's okay. the only one we share in common. So that's how I added it was uh, because I want to get this to another type of calendar I have. But yeah, so I went to iCal accounts, right. added the, the my Gmail account, and then all of a sudden Mac Ecab showed up because you decided to share it keyed to my Gmail account. Now, Got here's it. the here's the issue with doing it that way and only that way is that that data is not synced to mobile me. OK, it's only synced to Google, which means that if your iPad, iPhone, uh, iPod Touch is also synced to mobile me, it's not going to see that calendar. However, you can sync your iPad, your iDevice to Google and have it see that calendar. And I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe you can have it sync to mobile me and your Google calendar. Uh, so you, you could, you could set it up that way. My advice to you, however, uh, and, and this is advice that predates the changes that are happening right now to mobile me, uh, mobile me is changing in terms of the calendar. It's not going to be Apple's custom proprietary hybrid format anymore. Mobile me is going CalDAV. You can make this change on there. Uh, and, and it's built to do all this stuff with sharing of calendars and all that stuff. It's still in beta. Um, iCal will support it in snow leopard. So, uh, that, that's something that, that, uh, now if you're willing or certainly down the road, uh, you can do, but Google makes it available for free now and has for a while. So what I do on my end is I have no calendars synced to mobile me. Uh, I have all my stuff only all my calendars only on Google, and then I sync my iPhone to Google and my iPad to Google and my Mac to Google. And that that's just where all the magic happens. And that way, when I make a change to the Mac Geek Gab calendar, John, you see it when I make a change to my, uh, you know, household calendar. Lisa sees it. My wife, you know, she makes a change. I see it. And it's all just immediate. I don't have to wait for my, you know, her computer to sync with uh, you know, the cloud and then to sync with her iPhone, there's not this multiple level. It's just everything talks to Google and that's how mobile me will be and is with this beta that they're, that they're rolling out here. But, uh, but so for, and I, I know we're going to talk more about this here, John, but for Roland, what I would suggest is that you put all your calendars on Google and, uh, including the stuff that only you are going to see and then only sync your devices with Google, get mobile me out of the mix for now. Uh, put all the stuff on Google, have your wife put all her stuff on Google. You've got it all out there and then you can pick which calendars you want to share with each other. And then otherwise you're, you're good to go. 
Uh, but that's that's kind of the 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 short version of the, of the answer for you here. There are other ways to do it. You could use iCal and sync with Mobile Me, but then use something called Busy Sync from the same people that make Busy Cal to uh, to sync your Google Calendar as though it's an on my Mac calendar as opposed to a a delegated calendar or a subscribed calendar. Uh, that's one way. The other way, of course, is just buy Busy Cal uh, and it'll do all this stuff for you. But but uh, but that that's how I do it. And that's that is how I do it. I actually use busy Cal, but it but it doesn't really matter at that level what the client is. That's more of a personal preference of the user interface uh, than it is the feature set, because, again, all my data is stored out on Google. OK, now you told me because uh, just to, to check and we'll dig a little deeper into mm-hmm. this. Because I think it's a good topic because it, it's kind of confusing as far as all the, the numerous ways you can. Yeah. Do yeah. your calendars. But when I went to mobile me calendar with a browser, which, of course, you just go to your me account me.com or mac.com account and you'll see it yep now it has a little thing here with a little little yellow ribbon saying beta and it says upgrade to the calendar new calendar with sharing invitations and more right and you said don't touch that well not for him because his wife's on a windows machine oh and she still wants to access the calendar there right so we know that there are countless ways of her to access the her google calendar there uh, but she may not have a mobile me account, right? You know, we, we, okay. we don't know. So Should. that's, that's why I said go to Google for them because it is a, a free right. for everyone, you know, multi-platform ready to roll service. Whereas this mobile me thing, I mean, it's in public beta. It's probably pretty close to done, but, uh, but certainly it's a for pay service and B the integration with windows is probably not to the level that Google calendar is. So I, I'd go with the free Google okay. account. Should um, should I upgrade? Well, you need to be very careful. This is a good separate conversation. You that need is, to be- that's why I asked because yeah. it sounds like you had a concern about me. Because I mean, if I if I upgrade, well, I have heard people saying if you use other products, don't upgrade to the new beta because it's going to mess things up. And you know, that's, that's exactly a, of course at a very high level. <laughs> yeah, that's it. well, that's exactly it. If if all you're using is iCal with calendars that sync only to Mobile Me. Then uh, and even if you have iDevices, as long as the only sync thing that you have is mobile me, you're going to be totally fine. However, if you do other things like for me, I use BusyCal. Uh, there is a BusyCal public beta that syncs with this. But, it, you know, I've already got my life synced with Google calendars, my, you know, and it works really, really well. So I don't really have an interest in in blowing all that away for the sake of using mobile me, uh, you know, which I've hated over the years for calendar syncing because it's always screwed me up. Um, so, yeah, I, I have no interest in in going to mobile me's CalDev. Google is not CalDev. Mm-hmm. Google, Google acts as an exchange server, which is right. which is a very different thing. Um, but, but it works very, very well. So I, yeah, I, I wouldn't mess with it. Um, but, but if all you're doing is syncing to mobile me, then yes, convert to the new one. It is going to be more reliable than the previous stuff. If I hadn't done this Google thing and had this set up for the last, you know, 18 months or whatever, then I definitely would have moved to the mobile me beta. Cause it's got all the features that I hated that the old mobile me didn't have okay. sharing and all that good stuff. Yeah. Now the last question I have. So I'm looking at my Mac here. Okay. (laughs) Because I imagine if I have a question, Dave, probably one or more of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Or just to point this out. So there's another type of calendar I have, and you hopefully have this too, is Mac Roundtable is a podcast that you and I uh, participate in every now and then. 
And because of uh, there's such a large number of people, we decided to do a calendar. But that, Dave, I have under subscriptions. And I access it in a different way in that I went to an iCal to the calendar menu and said subscribe. And it's a separate. So whereas our Mac Geek app calendar is shown as a delegate yep. in iCal, the Mac Roundtable one is showed as a subscription. And I had to access it specifically as a subscription. Otherwise, uh, whoever set it up said it's not going to work right. Okay, so I don't know if they set that up on Google. I actually, I'm, I don't subscribe to that, but I probably should. Um, yeah, you should. They, they either set <laughs> I'll give you the information. Up. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, they either set that up on on a Google Calendar or it's or a Mobile Me Calendar. The old way of sharing a calendar with Mobile Me was to do to set it up in a way that that is exactly what you said. It's, it is a Google Calendar, by the way, because I'm looking. Okay. So I highlighted it and I said, "Get info." And the beginning of the URL or UI or whatever yep. is, is Google. So it's definitely a Google calendar, but I'm subscribing to it. So I guess my question is, if you know, or if not, you know, is it, it's different. It's, it's different. It's not a delegate. Yeah, you know, you, I, I set it up in a different way. It's not linked to your uh, Gmail or your Google calendar account. Okay. It's a separate thing that you subscribe to, but you don't have right privileges. In fact, even if you did, in iCal, when you subscribe in that way, there is no way for iCal to push changes up to it. So I see. It's, okay. Right. It's, it's not a read only so, kind of thing. And Google creates those. I mean, I, I subscribe to one, uh, you know, for, you know, the, the Patriots schedule. So it just shows up on my phone. But and I wanted it linked that way. But, you know, things uh, like that, like your the holidays calendar that you have in Google is probably similar, but. And on that one, instead of subscribing in iCal, you subscribed in Google. And my guess is you could subscribe to this one in your Google account. You'd have to do it on the web and then it would show up as part of your delegates and it would all be linked together. Does that make sense? Okay. No, I, I, uh, now that you mention it, I think, all right, so you're correct. It's not hooked to my Google account. Right. But so a subscription, and I'm going to take a guess here is that anybody, if they knew the super secret Mac Roundtable calendar, they could subscribe to it. Possibly. Because yes. I, I'm not sure if it knows, who, because I, I don't believe I submitted a password. I think we were just given a link. And the okay. link, suffice to say, has a, you, uh, you know, a GUID or some unique yep. value where you're not going to guess it. Right. it. It's this huge hex thing or, yeah, or whatever. If, if, it, if, you, if you got an email from someone that had the link to it, you don't need a password. It, the link contains everything you need. Yeah, that's, that's probably right. That's probably right. All right. So I think that's why it's appearing under subscriptions. And then also, I think at some point, because you asked me, Dave, well, John, does that appear in your iPod touch? And I'm like, yes, it does. And I'm like, well, why does it? And then I looked and it's actually a separate entry here. So at some point, I think I manually added it to my iDevice. And that's why it shows up on my iDevice as well. So they're both pointing to the same thing. So it kind of makes sense that I should be seeing the same thing from both. But uh, yeah. But again, neither one of them has the ability to write to that calendar. Right. There's a person who owns this calendar. And when yep. they, they put up changes, you know, the next time it refreshes, it, it grabs those. Exactly. So. so a safer way to do it would be to create it as a Google calendar and then share it only amongst the people that you want to have access to it. Because you can make a Google calendar public or private. And by default, of course, they're private. But keep it private, but only add, you know, the, the 10 or 15 people that are to have access. And you can even set it that they don't have write privileges. They only have read. And then, uh, you know, and then you're good to go. But, that you know, that's that that's the nuances of it. But the, the answer is, especially for Roland here, uh, Google Calendar 
uh, is the the best way to uh, to do that. And and it's there's articles on the web about it, the specifics. It's not it's it's frankly it's not the kind of thing that makes sense to go through here in the podcast because you wouldn't want to listen and and click and listen and click. So. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, moving on to Jim. So <laughs> Jim, Jim says the task create a network in a friend's big house. Wi-Fi hardware is an airport extreme base station and an airport express situation. He has the a, the extreme connected to an iMac via, via Ethernet and the Wi-Fi network off the extreme is set up with WPA to personal. He can wirelessly connect the extreme with the iMac, my MacBook Pro and his two Windows computers, one Vista, one XP. The problem when we add in the express, it connects to the Wi-Fi network off the extreme, but his Windows computers cannot connect to the Internet through the express configuration. Extreme is configured to create Windows, create wireless network with the allow this network to be extended block checked. I've selected 802.11n and BNG compatible as the radio mode and have selected channel six. I configure the extreme to extend wireless network security is also WPA2 personal and the channel is automatically selected as the same channel as the extreme as the express extreme. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I get the green light indicating the express has successfully connected to the extreme and I get I can get to the Internet through the express. I know that by reading the number of the wireless devices connected to the express and by locating myself in a place where the signal from the extreme is poor to non-existent. The two Windows machines connect to the express, at least by device count. It looks like they do, but they cannot get to the Internet discovery. If I turn off all security in the network, everything seems to work fine. But of course, running the network open is not acceptable. So the question is, how do I properly configure an extreme and an express to create a Wi-Fi network throughout the house that can be accessed by both Macs and Windows machines? Fix this one and it's drinks on me. All right, Jim. John, I know you have an answer to his actual question, uh, but I, I, I want do. It, I, well, I think you do. I, I, I have a suggestion. Okay. I'm, I'm going to give my answer first here. And, and I feel like I'm the one I, I, I'm responsible here because I started a lot of us down this path. <laughs> Look, a couple of years ago, I had a really you cool experience. Responsible? Well, you know, uh, I had a really cool experience in a hotel room. No, not that kind. Uh, I had a wireless network in the hotel. But I couldn't get it from my desk in the hotel room. And I was going to be there for like four days. So I, I walked around the room with my laptop and realized, oh, great. I can get the wireless network in the bathroom. Joy. You know, this isn't going to work out. So I, uh, I, I, had my, I had been traveling with my airport extreme base station. And so I did. I put that in wireless extension mode. I plugged it in in the bathroom. I like teetered it above the light because that was the best spot. And then it did. It extended the signal back, you know, maybe the extra 10 or 15 feet that I needed to get it to the uh, to the desk. It was it was. But the thing is, it was a frustrating experience. There was there was no security, first of all. Uh, and, And the signal was, you know, choppy at best. It was better than nothing, which is what I had without it. But it wasn't great. It was this kind of flaky thing. Since then, I have never had anything but frustration and no success uh, with doing any of this wireless extension stuff. Most of the time, it makes the signal worse. 
but I've really had bad, bad experiences with it. So much so that my advice to you, Jim, is take the money you were going to use to buy us drinks. We'll buy our own drinks. Uh, and uh, go buy power line adapters. Get, you know, a set of them Two. plug one in and the, into the outlet near the uh, extreme one in near the express, put the express in bridge mode and uh, let it get its internet over ethernet and just broadcast. And that way it's just a wireless access access point. And you've saved yourself a ton of headache. In fact, you'll probably still buy us drinks because this is such good advice. Uh, however, that may that's not the the answer to your question, but I think it's the answer to your problems. But John, you've got an answer to his question, I think. I think I do have an answer. So, Dave, the the options that he selected. So, so one thing you got to keep in mind here, or I just want to provide some uh, uh, basic guidance here. Yeah. There are two devices that you have to set up to do this. And he pointed this out, but, but I want to reiterate this. One is what I'm going to call the primary or main base station, which is probably going to be your airport extreme you know, I still curse Apple for using the same letters for Extreme and Express because, like you, I think you stumble on that, and I will. Uh, hopefully, I won't. Yeah. And you'll 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 catch me if I do. But the thing is, so you have your Extreme, which is the boss. It's the main access point in the house, and he's trying to extend that to an Express. Now, although what he's saying is correct, so if you do go into the airport utility and you go to airport, and then there's going to be a sub tab, wireless. And you're going to see a checkbox. So you're going to see wireless mode, create a wireless network. And under that, you're going to see farther down, allow this network to be extended. And that's little checkbox. Okay. And that's what he did. Right? And that's what he did. Okay. Now, my only issue is that when I dug a little bit into the Apple documentation, Dave, it said, well, there is another way to set up extensions. But it says, if you're extending an 802.n now, note what the documentation said was not 802.n BG compatible, but 802.n exclusively. Got so it. one thing I'm going to surmise is that maybe this doesn't work quite as well as it should if, you have, if you're in this compatibility mode. Because actually, I told you, Dave, I actually had a problem when I was trying the... Uh, you know, a, a, another product, it did not work with the Apple base station in this mode. So maybe there was a bug in Apple's implementation of, you know, this compatibility mode. But there is another choice in that menu, Dave. Yep. In the wireless mode. And what is it you ask? And you're going to, well, don't ask me. I'm, I'm going to tell you. It's called participate in a WDS network. Now, when you select that in the airport utility, all of a sudden a new tab appears, Dave. And it's called WDS. Okay. Which I think is wireless distribution system. Now, the bad news with this, Dave, is that it gets a bit more, and it sounds like you're, you're bringing up the airport utility <laughs> to, to track me here. Or not, I hear typing. Anyways, the thing is, this involves a little bit more effort because, number one, in the wireless part of the utility, you have to say participate in WDS network, but then what you have to do is identify the roles that each uh wireless device plays what i'm okay. suggesting is that he tries right. this different method here now when you get the wds tab you you get a number of choices here i verified this this afternoon uh prepping for the show so on the main device what you want to do is so under the wds tab you're going to see wds mode so i would suggest and i'm suggesting this just to try 
this other way of doing it, even though it appears to be a, a lot more work, I think it may. I mean, it's worth trying. It can't hurt. Yeah, right. The worst that happens is it won't work. <laughs> but the best thing that happens is it could work. So on the main thing, which will be the airport extreme, in the WDS mode, you want to select WDS main. And then what it has is a subsection in that, in that area okay. saying, oh, what are the WDS remotes? So here's the headache. You got to get... Isn't I mean, it, it? Isn't this what happens automatically when you've got two Apple routers and you just tell them to share? I, I'm, what I'm going to say, Dave, is it should. No, I agree with you. So, so it may sound like what I'm saying is more work for the same functionality. I'm suggesting you try this because it may get around some idiosyncrasy and imp- yeah. implementation on one or the other. Now, I don't know if all the devices he has are end devices. So that's why I kind of zeroed in on this. Right. Because when he mentioned he was in the BG compatible mode, I think he's in that mode for a reason. Uh, only because that's the default mode of... Uh, okay. I mean, he's in NBG, right? Which is, which is normal for that device. Right. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'm saying is that the instructions to use these shortcut boxes, these little check boxes saying extend or allow extension... Yep. Uh, from what the Apple documentation says, is only for 802.11n. So, okay, that's all I'm going to say. So, right. so I'm just saying it's worth trying this other method here because I think maybe because you're providing more information or all that, it may get around whatever problem is in the other implementations. And as you and I have seen as of late, Dave, um, I didn't believe it, but there are some hiccups in oh, the. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I have the time capsule, which is essentially an airport extreme with a hard drive in it. Um, uh, what I'm suggesting is he tries this because it may get around some sort of bug or, or weirdness. So anyways, so w- yeah. w- what he wants to do to wrap it up is to set up one, uh, set up the airport extreme to be the WDS main. And then he, he would do something similar on the express, but instead you want to set up the express as probably I would say a WDS relay. Are Which you is sure really about that because this is where it gets very interesting and the terminology gets uh Well well I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I'm sure about that because I'm looking in the utility Dave and okay. WDS relay in the help message that it lists below here says the relay airport wireless wireless device is connected to the main airport wireless device and shares its internet connection with remote and relay airport okay. wireless devices. I, I agree with you. So the problem is there are because three they, because pieces re- of terminology here. There's, there's the main, right. there's a relay, and a remote. Uh, when I've done this manually, I've had most success by doing relay. Okay. So what I'm suggesting uh, to, right. well, yeah, I mean, to I be succinct here is to try to set up the main device as the WDS main and to set up the other device as the WDS relay. The only thing is they're going to require you to get the MAC address of each device. Yes. If you don't get the MAC address, and that's where I think this... You know, checkbox does that automatically and because the biggest problem I had when I tried to do this in the early days when Apple was trying to roll this out or other vendors rolled this out, if you don't get the Mac address of the other device right, you're Oh yeah. It's not it's not gonna work. The Apple it, it doesn't will, happen. I'll give it to you in the in the airport uh admin utility. If you can't get it, connect to the base station directly from your computer, then go hit the mm-hmm. option key hit the airport drop down in your menu bar and you'll see the Mac address listed there and just write it down and then, and then type it in. So. I, I still love that tip. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
Let's move on. Michael has a good question. Yet another long answer, I'm sure, but uh, but a good question nonetheless. Michael, take it away. Hi, John and Dave and Pilot Pete. If you're there or listening, which you probably are, this is Michael in Boston. I have a four-year-old Core Duo Mac Mini, max at 2 gig of RAM, running Snow Leopard. I've done some tweaks on it over the years, and now it's showing some odd issues, like spontaneously rebooting, thankfully a rare event, and despite doing a full removal and reinstall of iTunes, it is also apparently incapable of restoring my iPhone. The local Apple Genius has offered, if I bring it in, to find out why it is not working, but not wanting to break your number one rule, I'm avoiding. I think it's time to do a proper nuke and pave on it. I think I have everything I need. The Snow Leopard DVD, two external backups, time machine to one, drive and carbon copy cloner to another. How do I go about doing that? I've heard that something called Migration Assistant can be useful, but I've never used it. Can you please talk, talk about it? Thank you, and this is where you cut me off. All right. Um... Now, did he say, I just want to make sure, Dave, an interesting little technical tangent, and then we'll get back to it, but he said Core Duo. Right. That's right. The first Mac Mini, which did not have a Core 2 Duo. Uh, right. And I, I believe what you're missing there is I don't believe the Core Duo is fully 64-bit. Correct. Okay. Yep, it it just, right. it, it was just in my mind somewhere. I, I, I don't think it affects anything that is going to be suggested, but you nope. are the nuke and pave guy, Dave. Well, yeah. So, or I heard the term from you that yeah. you may have borrowed it I elsewhere. Think, but well, I, yeah, it, it was it was something we threw around a lot back in the uh, Windows days when I was uh, <laughs> working with with computer nerds down in Texas. Because when Windows, you know, Nuke and Pave, if you spent more than like an hour, hour and a half on a problem, at Nuke and Pave was the answer. Because you know, Windows was such a needle in the haystack back then. Well, be, it got so corrupted. I think because uh, I've run into this too. Is that yeah. the system would be beyond redemption or repair in that there was there were so many things screwed up that it just made sense to just start from the beginning well there was that but it was also the you know even if it was one problem there was the that needle in the haystack thing that that got pretty bad with windows and and you know to be fair mac os 10 is worse now right because we've got unix under the hood so there's more of a haystack there too but uh but thankfully in most instances you don't have to uh have to nuke and pave so uh with this you know, the first thing I would try is a second user account. See if your iTunes will work, you know, see, see if the issue is there, but, but nuking and paving it, it, you know, it's not that big of a deal because of the migration assistance. So because you've got uh, your backups, really what you do is you put the snow leopard DVD in and you go through and what you want to choose is erase and install. You want to make sure you tell it to erase that disc, uh, Obviously, you know, the, the it, I know we just said you have backups, but anytime I say erase that disc, I feel like I have to follow it up and say, but really, really make well, sure no. you have a backup. Well, no, I got nervous when you said that, Dave, and I, I would recommend, uh, you know, I think my favorite is Carbon Copy Cloner. Yep, which he I has, think. right? He did both, right? Good. He's got Time Machine and Carbon Copy Cloner. So, you know, he's got the two. Ooh, he's good. Two, you know, I like that. So yeah. he doesn't have a single point. Uh, you know, that's that's even better. And I yeah. think that's great, great advice. So. Carbon Copy Cloner, I think Super Duper is the one that I don't personally use. I think you do, Dave, or yep. do you? I do. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so he's he's good to go. Uh, Snow Leopard DVD, make sure it erases the disc. And then when it comes back up, it's going to ask you, uh, you know, how do you, what do you want to do here? Do you want to start from scratch? Do you want to migrate from another Mac? Do you want to migrate from a backup disc from another Mac? How do you want to do it? 
Uh, and at that point, you know, the simplest thing is probably to point it at your time machine because that way you're dealing with Apple, you know, meeting Apple. But but a clone, well, a clone is also fine. It doesn't. It really doesn't matter. The data is in both places, um, and and it presumably as long as they were updated at the same time. Do you feel differently, John? Well, uh, the only thing I would bring up, Dave, and this this may be an aspect of Nuke and Pave, is that if you, if you're going off of an old backup. And you use migration assistant. I think we mentioned this in the past, but I, you know, I want to level set with you here. Is that you may potentially be be bringing cruft from the old system over? Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, the first thing I would do is say, okay. But I like it because it's easy and it's it's about the quit. In in that, I remember when I did the migration. You know, when I I was upgrading my my uh, parents' machine. The thing is, you get the user saying, "Wow, this looks like." my old machine because right. it brings everything over desktop uh, icons everything that may be good or not good so, so i just want to bring right. it up well i want to bring it up as a, a a point of concern because maybe you don't want to bring everything over but, but I, I i'm a big fan of migration assistant i always suggest to all my friends or anybody who's my who, who's going to a new machine from an old one yep. to use migration assistant but i just want to make sure no. to mention there's the potential for the bringing over of Cruft now, whether that will make the system slower or less stable is is open to debate, I think. Right. Right. So it's going to when you do migration assistant, really all it's going to do. Well, it, it'll give you some options. You can bring over your applications uh, and then you can bring over your user data. But it's not going to bring over system wide data. And that and that's maybe the source of your problem. And if it is, then. Doing it with migration assistant is the easiest way. As John said, you know, you're totally fine. You get everything like that you wanted and your system looks exactly like it used to, except now it works. Uh, and, and that's the path I would try first because it's the simplest and it gets you to your, your goal the quickest as long as it works. However, if you do that and then you start finding, oh, iTunes won't launch and, but the, the, you know, all these other problems. Okay, well, now you need to go back to the beginning again and and do a nuke and pave again, erase disk. Don't delete your backups yet. Right. You've still got those and they're safe. Uh, and then as it comes back around, don't let migration assistant import anything. Reinstall your apps manually and then copy your your documents uh, and your music and that stuff, copy that over manually just by plugging in either your time machine backup or your, in, in this case, it'd be even better to do it from your carbon copy cloner drive. Just plug that drive back in and copy the stuff back over manually that you need. So that way, the only thing you're bringing from your old machine is your documents, which include your pictures and your music files and things like that. But you're not bringing settings over. You're not bringing preferences. You're not bringing any program data you're just bringing the, uh, the, the, your document data essentially. And, and that in theory, you know, very minimal risk of inheriting any problems you had previously, because it's typically the problems aren't stored in your documents. Uh, they're stored elsewhere. So, but, but try the uh, migration assistant first. That, that would be my advice in this situation. So, and it, so, it sounds like that's kind of where you were going with this too, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, should we do Paul real quick here before we uh, before we call it a, a day, a week, a month, a year? Oh, in the uh, misc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that one because okay. yeah, I think we can. Yeah, cool. All right. So Paul writes, uh, "Hi guys, I just stumbled onto a site called hoaxbusters.org. This site finds you instantly." 
It tells you your IP address. It tells you that you're on a Mac. It tells you you're using Safari, Firefox, or whatever browser you've got. If you switch from one browser to another, it still knows. On a Wi-Fi connection using my MacBook in a public place, I'm not surprised. I do have it set for stealth mode, so maybe the security is just an illusion. I also tested this out on my iMac at home, which is plugged into an airport extreme. Perhaps this site is just getting the address of my airport and not my iMac. I don't know. All right, so this isn't all that scary. Uh, you, it, it, when you connect to any website, you have to send along some identifying information simply because you need that website to be able to talk back to you. Uh, so what you do, and when you visit MacObserver.com, the same thing happens. You send along right. a request, and the first thing it's got is your IP address. It has to. But as you pointed out, Paul, it's not the IP address of your Mac. It's the IP address of your router because your router is the only thing talking to the Internet. Right. And then. Uh, well, should be. Yeah. If you're doing that and all, it, all, all things in like a that. default setup. That, yeah, good point, John. Excellent point. Yep. That's right. But then, you know, it also sends along browser information. And there's a little header that, you know, in the request, it says, give me. The, you know, slash Mac Geek Gab page at Mac Observer and I am Safari version, you know, whatever running on OS 10. And here's all my identifying information. And that information can be helpful to the web server because there's some browsers that behave differently than others or devices. Dave. Or de that's right. Yeah, As we know. And I think this is especially yep. relevant because I devices, because they're limited in you know, generating certain content. Right. What happens is the web server trusts the client or the device that you have to say, all right, here's what I am. Here's what I'm running. Here are my capabilities. Maybe it'll tell you something about the resolution of the screen and stuff like that. And especially with, again, iDevices. Uh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't tell you the res of the screen. You'd have to, you have to get that by, with JavaScript, but that's also easy to get. Right. I've, I've seen that happen though, where, yeah. yeah, it's surprising the amount of info, but, but I guess the, the bottom line is, the server kind of trusts the client to provide this info, which, you know, Dave, it, maybe you could tweak. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you absolutely can. Yeah. If you, if you turn on uh, Safari's develop menu, uh, then you can, you can set what's called the user agent, which is, which contains all this data that we're talking about. And you can, you can set it to, you know, any version of Safari, mobile Safari, internet Explorer. You could make people think you're on windows or a Mac, whatever you want. Um, but yeah, if you go, what is it? Safari preferences, I think advanced and you check the show develop menu in menu box mm -hmm. and then that'll, that'll let you set the user agent. But yeah, this stuff isn't scary, but John, you, you know about, a a way of truly anonymizing this. So they don't know where you come from. And here's the interesting part. So normally when you connect to another computer, so you, you have your web browser, you connect to a web server, it gets your IP address. This is necessary. For the most part. Well, let, let me step back. It's necessary that the server has an IP address, Dave. Right. It needs to know who to talk back to, right? Right. If it's not available, like you would think, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, super secret spy guy and I'm going to change my IP address. Well, if you do that, then the network's going to break down because, anyways, yeah. we're not going to get into a TCP IP 101, though we may in the future. But anyways, the thing is, the server needs an address. Now, whether it's provided by you or something else doesn't really matter. And there is something, Dave, called Tor. And 
if you, if you want to check this out. We've talked about this before, I think. Yes, we have. So it's called the Tor Project. And if you go to www.torproject.org, you will get the information. What these guys do is they basically set up a network of anonymizers or servers that you connect to their server, and then their server on your behalf connects to another server, like a web server. The bottom line is, if you're concerned for whatever reason, and we're not going to get into that because that's a whole other podcast, right. um, about somebody not, uh, no, but there are leg- legitimate and illegitimate reasons you sure. don't want somebody to know where you're coming from. And again, we're not going to get into it, but what these guys do is, and, and they provide plugins, and I, I think the one that I found uh, that, that works on Mac and others is called Vidalia. And it's like an onion, right? Because you're peeling the onion and getting... Oh, isn't that clever? Isn't that clever? And we'll link to to all of these. But the thing is, what you do is... And and the the best platform, I think, is Firefox has a plugin that will basically make you part of the Tor network. So when you connect using Firefox to... uh, Or you can do it with a proxy server using Safari or something like that. But basically, if you run the Tor program, you appear to be coming from different places from people that are running this Tor network. So the thing is, people will not necessarily know unless the Tor network is compromised, which, hey, who knows? <laughs> right. And I've heard of that happening, too, is people will set up Tor networks because they know, well, these are evil people that want to anonymize their IP, so I'm going to set up one of these servers and be par- part of this network. Anyways, the thing is, the bottom line is the web server has to know an IP address, whether it's of your browser or your router or the Tor network, it's necessary. If you're concerned about people identifying you based on your IP address, then something like Tor network, I think, is the best way to shield your activities from those that care about this sort of thing. Makes sense. Makes sense. Cool. All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up here, John. I think it's time to uh, to bring the baby. Or the other thing, Dave, in out. my book is, hey, you just look for an open Wi-Fi access point. Yeah, that's right. That, I'm that serious. Is, yeah, I, 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 I've seen as of late when I've been perusing what's in my neighborhood, you know, depending on where I'm traveling, yep. a lot of people are locking them down. I see the lock. You know, of course, you go in the airport menu, you see a little lock. And it basically yep. says somebody's used some level of security to lock this down. That's right. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, we've talked about the email address to use. Of course, 206-666-GEEK is the other way of getting comments to us. And, of course, John, GEEK is... Four. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there? It's a Peter Brady moment. No, no. I'm uh, no, I'm just getting over my uh, illness here. I was over... Four, three, three, five. How's that? Uh, that works. Uh, we'll be at Blog World Expo next uh, Thursday through Sunday. Of course, I'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this to AAC for us and for you. Of course, all the bandwidth comes from Cashfly. And that's it. Let's get out of here, John. We will uh, We will see you folks on Monday. Well, we'll talk to you on Monday. Tuesday. No, Tuesday. Tuesday. That's right. We're doing the show that's right. Tuesday. We got a holiday. That's right. Day off. We got to love it. All right. Thanks. I think. Right? We're done? think so the list is done thank you so much folks for uh for being premium subscribers we really do appreciate it yep absolutely have a great weekend if you have a long weekend have a great long weekend but either way don't get caught 
Almeida.